are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This episode came about in an unusual way. You see, Byron Hoffmeister attended Berkeley High School. I'm guessing he graduated in 1965, which means he went to school with my uncle. They may have known each other growing up. In talking with my dad one day, he mentioned that when I was a kid, my uncle used to mention this guy, Byron Hoffmeister, saying something like, well, that's a bad guy, but he's no Byron Hoffmeister. Dad and I knew Byron Hoffmeister had killed someone, but we figured it was in a bar fight or maybe vehicular homicide not the brutal stabbing of a 17-year-old girl on the side of the road. So let's return to the summer of 1971, when a high school senior outperforming good deeds crossed paths with an unrepentant monster. Wait, no, we can't start there. Not in 1971, because that's not when the story began. It began years earlier, and had Hoffmeister not taken a plea deal? The story may have ended there. So today's story begins in January of 1968, and it starts behind the wheel of a 1964 Chevy. Now, the details here are sketchy. Police kept only a thin file of documents, perhaps 10 pages in all, and because a plea deal was arranged, the courts don't have much information either. Byron Hoffmeister is in his hometown of Berkeley, Michigan, and he's near the ice arena on Robina Avenue where he picks up two children, a boy and a girl. She was perhaps 14, and her brother about eight years old. Again, the details here are sketchy. He took the pair to a home near 11 Mile and Greenfield Roads in Southfield, where he choked and then sexually assaulted the boy and attempted to sexually assault the teenage girl. At some point, Hoffmeister left the boy in the basement of the home and put the girl in his car, and they drove off. He eventually pushed her out of the car in West Bloomfield. The bruised and frightened girl would be picked up by West Bloomfield police near the intersection of Green Road and Orchard Lake Road, nearly 15 miles from her home in Berkeley. Both children are taken to Providence Hospital for an examination. Details of the male victim's injuries were not noted. We know that he was choked and sexually assaulted, but there is no record of how serious his injuries were. The documents available on this incident show that the 14-year-old girl had bruises on her face, scrape marks on her neck, and was subjected to a gynecological exam because of the attempted sexual assault. Later in the day, Southfield police spot the 1964 Chevy and take Hoffmeister into custody without incident. His parents are contacted, and they hire legal representation for him. His attorney, Philip Ingraham, works with Byron's parents to have him released on a $3,000 bond until his court appearance on February 5, 1968. Hoffmeister is charged with six counts, two counts of kidnapping, two counts of gross indecency, and two counts of aggravated assault without a weapon. Hoffmeister is bound over for trial, and a March 25th trial date is set. A jury is seated, and some testimony heard, 
but Ingraham worked with the prosecutor. A deal was arranged. Hoffmeister will plead guilty to one count of kidnapping and one count of gross indecency with a child. A far cry from the six counts he was on trial for. On April 10, 1968, a letter is sent from the Oakland County Prosecutor, S. Jerome Bronson, to the Berkeley Chief of Police, advising him that Hoffmeister took a plea, one count of kidnapping a child under 14 years of age, and one count of gross indecency. The first count has a sentence of two and a half to nine years. The second count has a sentence of two and a half to five years. I've posted a copy of the letter on our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com, if you'd like to see it. Listeners, Byron Hoffmeister will serve less than three years for kidnapping and sexually assaulting two children. Then he'll be out on the streets, free to get married, free to father a child, and, worst of all, free to murder 17-year-old Wendy Ann Braddon in 1971. Wendy Braddon was a good kid, and I don't mean that she was well-mannered or well-behaved. I mean, she was a good person. Wendy spent the last hours of her life volunteering for ALSAC, which stands for Aiding Leukemia-Stricken American Children. Wendy was an active fundraiser for the group and spent the afternoon of Wednesday, August 11th in Oakland County, 20 miles from her Livingston County home. Wendy was a fundraising chairman for ALSAC and made the drive east to Farmington Township to attend a meeting, pick up ALSAC literature, and do some additional door-to-door canvassing for the charity. Wendy pointed her powder-blue Volkswagen westbound on Interstate 96 and headed for home. Just before her exit onto Pleasant Valley Road, a man pulled alongside of her and signaled that she should pull over. Wendy, concerned that something could be wrong with her trusty car, took the exit as planned, but stopped her vehicle at the side of the road near the end of the ramp. The man who had signaled to her pulled up nearby and exited his vehicle, a silver sports car, and they talked. Several drivers saw Wendy, with her chin-length hair and bright eyes, standing outside of her vehicle, speaking to a white male, about five foot eight inches tall, medium build with shoulder-length wavy brown hair. The two were near the side of the road, but they soon relocated to a small parking area just north of the expressway. They were seen in both areas, the side of the road and the parking lot, by several witnesses. No one saw him pull out a knife and attack her, stabbing her multiple times before Wendy broke away from him, getting behind the wheel of her car and driving away. Arriving moments later at a friend's house, Wendy fell from the car, her chest covered in blood. She'd received a dozen wounds and her right hand was horrifically injured, the thumb nearly severed. Her friend, Sherry, cried out for her father, who phoned for an ambulance to transport Wendy to the hospital. Wendy was crying and upset. She was able to talk to Sherry, but did not tell her who was responsible for her injuries. Wendy Braddon had only minutes left to live, as one of the stab wounds inflicted by the stranger penetrated Wendy's heart, and she died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Horrified by the brutal daylight attack, police set up roadblocks, trying to find the man who killed Wendy, but they were unsuccessful. Then they interviewed her friends and family, her schoolmates, 
They wanted to see who was angry with Wendy, who might want to harm her. But no names stood out. Wendy was a nice girl, generous, kind. She wasn't dating anyone, and she'd spent her summer either fundraising for LSAC, working her part-time job, or swimming at the lake. Next, police interviewed any men that may have had contact with her who owned a silver or gray sports car. They looked at people who drove Camaros, Firebirds, Mustangs. Detective Joel McGee of the Michigan State Police said they were following up on 70 tips in the case. Listeners, come with me to the summer of 1971, when a 17-year-old high school senior meets her end by the side of the road and detectives work to uncover the many crimes of Berkeley native Byron Hoffmeister. The investigation into the seemingly random murder of Wendy Ann Braddon occurred the evening of August 11, 1971, when she drove to her friend's house immediately after the attack, seeking help. Police began searching for a white male with longish-brown hair, driving a late-model silver or gray sports car. The police set up roadblocks immediately after the stabbing of Wendy Braddon. The roadblocks police had set up did not trap 24-year-old Byron Lee Hoffmeister. He made it back to the mobile home he shared with his wife, Shirley, and their three-year-old daughter. While Hoffmeister left his fingerprints behind on Wendy's Volkswagen, prints had to be checked manually. 1971 technology isn't like today, where you scan in a print and wait a few minutes for the computer to spit out a match. There were fingerprint technicians looking at print cards, making a visual comparison of each card. If there was a match, it was verified using the same techniques. Now, stabbing someone is a messy business. I wonder if Hoffmeister was covered in Wendy's blood, or if his hands had injuries from wielding the knife. Did his wife, Shirley, notice anything amiss that evening when he returned home? Let's talk for a moment about Shirley, the mother of his young child. She was involved with Hoffmeister at the time of his arrest in January of 1968 for gross indecency and the kidnapping of two children. I don't know if they were already married or just dating at that point. She may have already been pregnant with their daughter because in October of 1971, the newspaper reported that the pair is married and have a three-year-old daughter. As days turned into weeks and no one is arrested and charged with the murder of Wendy Braddon, the case fell out of the news. Was that a relief to Hoffmeister? Did he think about it at all? Michigan State Police were thinking about it, and they worked feverishly to track down the man responsible for killing Wendy Braddon. It would take several weeks and a change of seasons for an arrest to be made. Acting on an anonymous tip, police took Byron Hoffmeister in for questioning. Hoffmeister had a record. He'd been in prison for kidnapping and gross indecency, and listeners, we know that he took a plea and served far less time than he should have for that crime. Hoffmeister, being an ex-con, had difficulty finding work doing construction, which was his preferred field. At the time of his arrest, he is working at a service station out in Royal Oak. The drive from his trailer in Highland to work in Royal Oak was a long one but the job was close to the Berkeley home where his parents lived and not too far from where his wife's family lived as well. Police had evidence linking Hoffmeister to the crime. He had touched the front of Wendy's blue Volkswagen. 
They'd printed him when he was brought in for questioning in her murder, and his finger and palm prints matched what was found on the car. They were unable to identify some of the palm prints on the Volkswagen as being from him or Wendy. A woman who had driven past Wendy and the man with the silver sports car just moments before the attack picked Hoffmeister out of a lineup. The witness had been hesitant to do the lineup. She didn't want to pick out just anyone. What if she was wrong? She picked Hoffmeister out of the lineup. She believed he was the person she had seen with Wendy Braddon on the side of the road in August. At the pretrial hearing, police revealed that the tip about Hoffmeister didn't come from a witness or a friend in the Brighton or Highland area. The tip came from Royal Oak Police. You see, Royal Oak Police had received information from a man who knew Hoffmeister. Positive witness identification was made of Hoffmeister's car, a 1970 silver-gray Pontiac Firebird. On November 3, 1971, Byron Hoffmeister is bound over for trial in the murder of 17-year-old Wendy Ann Braddon. Prosecutors opt to charge him with first-degree or premeditated murder. Their thinking is that he got Wendy to pull her car over for him because he made her believe there was something wrong with her vehicle. A trial is scheduled for March 14, 1972. Hoffmeister's attorney, and he's again represented by Phil Ingraham, argues that his client should not be tried for first-degree murder. Ingraham wants a lesser charge, second-degree murder. The prosecutor pushes for the first-degree charge. The judge listens to both attorneys, and the prosecutor gets his wish. First-degree murder is what Hoffmeister is tried for. On Tuesday, March 14, 1972, the trial of Byron Lee Hoffmeister begins in Howell, Michigan, at the Livingston County Circuit Court. Hoffmeister is represented by Phil Ingraham, and Livingston County Prosecutor Thomas Kinzer Jr. is on the other side of the aisle, with Judge Paul Mahinsky presiding. A jury of seven men and five women is selected from a pool of 150 potential jurors. During the trial, more than a dozen witnesses take the stand to testify that they saw the victim, 17-year-old Wendy Ann Braddon, standing on the side of the road next to her Volkswagen, speaking to a man who drove a silver or gray sports car. While none of the witnesses would positively identify Hoffmeister as the man she was speaking with, a fingerprint analyst testifies that he was able to match Hoffmeister's fingerprints to prints taken from the outside of the Volkswagen. The prosecutor calls 33 witnesses as he builds a circumstantial case around Byron Hoffmeister. They had his prints on her car. They had a man matching his description seen talking to Wendy in the minutes before she was attacked. But no one was able to definitively say that he was the one speaking with her. And then they had his car, the gray sports car, which matched the description of Hoffmeister's own Pontiac Firebird. Hoffmeister and Braddon did not know each other. There was no reason for his prints to be on her vehicle. Closing arguments are presented on Friday, and Judge Mahinsky asks the jury to deliberate over the weekend. After seven hours of debate, on Saturday, March 19th, the jury returns a guilty verdict, first-degree murder. On April 18th, Judge Mahinsky hands down a sentence of life in prison with a recommendation that Hoffmeister spend the first five years of his sentence in solitary confinement. Hoffmeister is transferred to Jackson Prison. Attorney Ingraham immediately appeals the sentence. And in April of 1974, the appeal is denied. 
so his legal team takes a different approach. They ask for a reduction in sentence from first to second degree murder, arguing that the prosecutor, Thomas Kinzer Jr., did not meet the burden of proving first degree murder. The appeal allows a resentencing of Hoffmeister. Judge Mahinsky declines to alter the sentence, but second degree murder means that at some point Hoffmeister will be eligible for parole. Livingston County residents are concerned that Hoffmeister could be released after serving only 10 years in prison for the murder of Wendy Braddon. And listeners, we know that he served only two years for kidnapping and assaulting two children, so their fears are not unrealistic. A petition drive is launched, and hundreds of signatures land on Judge Mahinsky's desk asking him to do something, asking him to stop anything that would lead to Hoffmeister's release. Mahinsky hears the people, and he agrees with them. Hoffmeister is violent and unrepentant. Citing his previous criminal convictions, the 1968 kidnapping and sexual assault of an eight-year-old boy and his sister, Mahinsky invokes the habitual offender law, and he has Hoffmeister sentenced to another 90 to 130 years in prison. This means Hoffmeister must serve 30 years before he is eligible for parole. Here, right here, this is where you think the story should end. The bad guy's in prison, Wendy's family is learning to live without their daughter, and the community is moving past their memories of the murder of a young girl. Except this isn't the end of the story. It will be another 15 years until Byron Hoffmeister's name is mentioned in the press. And again, listeners, before we can move forward... We have to look back. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. For a 30-day trial and a free audiobook, visit www.audible.com Detroit or text Detroit to 500-500. If you're looking for something engaging, try The Outsider by Stephen King. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your own books. Download and listen on iOS, Android, Amazon Fire tablet, or your Windows phone. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for activities like hiking, sunbathing, road tripping, and more. Your 30-day trial and a free audiobook are waiting at Audible. Visit audible.com slash Detroit or text Detroit to 500-500. That's audible.com slash Detroit or text Detroit to 500-500. And now, back to the show. It's 1967. Did you think that Hoffmeister got his start in 68 when he kidnapped and assaulted two children? Oh no, he started much earlier than that. On July 15, 1967, Bruce Short is 20 years old, and his marriage to high school sweetheart Marcia is not working out the way that he'd hoped. While Bruce stayed in their Detroit apartment, Marcia took their baby and moved back in with her mom into her family home on 11 Mile Road in Huntington Woods. Bruce was hopeful they would work things out, He still loved her, and he loved their young son, Terry. But being a new father and being 20, it's not easy. Supporting a family isn't easy, but they'd work through it. He was sure. And that warm July morning started out like any other. 
Bruce showed up at work at a Dodge dealership near Palmer Park in Detroit. Bruce worked on cars. He was good with his hands, and he liked the work. As he went about his day, two police officers showed up. Bruce was surprised to see law enforcement in the shop and asked what he could do for them. They told him to put down the wrench, and then they cuffed him. Bruce turned to a co-worker and yelled, Please call my wife. Tell her I've been arrested. It wasn't until 20-year-old Bruce Short was back at the police station in Huntington Woods that he learned the truth. His wife wouldn't be coming to his rescue because she'd been murdered. Someone had stabbed and beaten Marcia in the kitchen of her mother's home in Huntington Woods. One small comfort from the crime is that their infant son, Terry, was safe in his crib. Terry was spared any violence. Police wanted to get the person who had murdered Marcia, and as they looked at Bruce Short sitting in the interrogation room, they knew they had their man. Huntington Woods is a city that's just south of Berkeley in Oakland County. Huntington Woods is so small that they don't have their own high school. Kids from Huntington Woods attend Berkeley High. Marcia Southard was a Berkeley High School graduate, and that's also how Marcia knew Byron Hoffmeister. When she was in high school, she dated one of Hoffmeister's good friends. Marcia's brother, Greg Southard, discovered Marcia's beaten and stabbed body when he returned home after a date in the small hours of the morning. When Huntington Woods police arrive at the scene of the homicide, it isn't pretty. 19-year-old Marcia Southard Short was killed in a violent and brutal attack. Her body lay face down on the kitchen floor, among broken glass and an upended chair. She'd been stabbed more than 20 times. From her injuries and the blood spatter, they determined that Marcia fought for her life, but she was overpowered. The killer didn't just stab her. He had beaten her repeatedly with an empty glass soda bottle and then kicked and stomped on her when she was on the ground. On the stove near her body is a bloody handprint that is collected and put into evidence by the Michigan State Police Crime Lab. Fingerprint analyst Paul Brabant worked the print, and he determined it was not a match to her husband's prints. So listeners, Bruce Short did not leave the bloody handprint near his wife's body. That print belonged to someone else. When police speak with the Southard's neighbors on 11 Mile Road, no one heard the family dog, Baron, barking during the night, although when police arrived at the scene that morning, the dog reacted loudly and had to be sequestered in the bathroom so they could do their work. I've also heard that one of Hoffmeister's friends was with him the day after the murder of Marcia Short. This friend saw Hoffmeister dispose of bloody clothing and shoes. This friend also noted injuries to Hoffmeister's hands. The friend shared the information to Huntington Woods Police, and unfortunately, it didn't change the course or the target of their investigation. There was more evidence in the Southard home. A photograph of Byron Hoffmeister. The photo was on the coffee table in the living room, just a few feet from Short's body. Why would there be a photo of him at the crime scene? So the information they had about Hoffmeister disposing of bloody clothes, about the bloody handprint next to the body not matching Bruce Short, did not prevent the Huntington Woods police from arresting him and charging him with murder. Bruce Short, a 20-year-old widower with a young son, was put on trial for the murder of his wife. The trial, held in Oakland County, took place in 1968. 
There was little evidence linking Short to the murder, plus the fact that a bloody handprint on the stove near his wife's body did not belong to him. It took the jury only a couple of hours to deliberate, and they found Bruce Short not guilty. Despite being acquitted of the murder of his wife, the Southard family, particularly Marsh's mother, was reluctant to give young Terry Short back to his father. It would be several months before Bruce was reunited with his son. The murder, the accusations, and the trial tore the two families apart. The acquittal was not a comfort to Bruce or to his wife's family. Who had murdered Marcia, and why? The question would take three decades to answer. Remember the Michigan State Police evidence technician I mentioned earlier, Paul Brabant? He processed the bloody handprint. He was not notified of Short's trial, and he was not called to testify. In a 1996 interview with the Detroit newspaper, Brabant said that he was, quote, quite upset that prosecutors didn't tell him about the trial until it was over. In the same 1996 news piece, Huntington Woods Detective Lieutenant John Morrison agreed that the case against Short should never have gone to trial. After the 1968 trial, Bruce Short heard rumors that someone his wife knew in high school, Byron Hoffmeister, could be responsible for her murder. Hoffmeister had a criminal record, and he knew Marcia. After Hoffmeister was sent to prison in 1968, Short went to the Huntington Woods Police with this information, but the department wasn't receptive. When Hoffmeister was arrested for the murder of Wendy Braddon in October of 71, Short went to the Michigan State Police Post in Brighton. He told them what he'd been through, the murder of his wife, the trial, the acquittal. Then he told them about the unidentified print from the stove, a bloody print left near the brutally murdered body of his wife. Police took Short's information and spoke with Michigan State Police fingerprint analyst Paul Brabant. We mentioned him earlier. He's the Michigan State Police analyst who collected the bloody print from the Southard home after Marsh's murder. He also printed a beer can in the living room of the Southard home, which had prints on it, prints that did not match the victim. Brabant compared the prints taken from the Southard home to prints he had on file for Byron Hoffmeister. They were a match. Brabant packaged up this information and forwarded it to the Huntington Woods Police Department. The department received the information, and they placed it in the file with the rest of the evidence on the Marsha Short murder case. You heard that correctly. Information that would have cleared Bruce Short and the murder of his wife sat in a case file on a shelf for 20 years. In 1992, Huntington Woods has a new police chief, and the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office is looking to clear old cases. Huntington Woods Detective Lieutenant John Morrison dusts off the case file on the murder of Marcia Short, the young woman who died on the kitchen floor of her home 25 years earlier in 1967. In the file, they find the information sent by Paul Brabant, showing that convicted killer Byron Hoffmeister is the owner of the bloody handprint found near Marcia's body. While the photo of Hoffmeister from the living room of the Southard home is lost, the crime scene photos where the picture of Hoffmeister is visible and identifiable, are still in the file. Here is a case that Oakland County can clear. Hoffmeister is charged in the murder of 19-year-old Marcia Short. 
1992, Bruce Short is in his mid-40s. His son, Terry, is an adult. And someone is finally being held accountable for the murder of Marsha Southard Short in a home on 11 Mile on a July day in 1967. No one from the old neighborhood in Berkeley is surprised to learn it was Byron who killed her. There had been rumors for years. Listeners, I've seen yearbook photos of Marsha, and she was a pretty girl. Perhaps Hoffmeister thought he had a chance with her since she and Bruce were on the outs. Marsha wasn't interested, and she turned him down. This could be the same scenario that played out leading to the murder of Wendy Braddon. It's not hard to imagine Wendy, a high school student, turning down a married man seven years her senior. In 1992, Hoffmeister, who is still in prison for the murder of Wendy Braddon, goes on trial in the 1967 murder of Marcia Short in Huntington Woods. During the trial, Huntington Woods Police Chief David Danaher offers an apology to Bruce Short for what he went through in the years following the murder of his wife. Listeners, between 1967 and 1972, James Stewart was the chief of police at Huntington Woods. To my knowledge, Stewart never spoke publicly about the murder of Marcia Short. He left his position in Huntington Woods for a job with the U.S. Marshal Service. Stewart passed away in 2014 at age 89. As I researched this case, Huntington Woods police, past and present, were helpful, open, and forthcoming with information about Marcia Short and Byron Hoffmeister. But let's get back to 1992. Hoffmeister is found guilty of Short's murder, but his attorney immediately files an appeal because during closing arguments, the Oakland County prosecutor, Greg Townsend, he mentioned that Hoffmeister had been convicted and was serving time for the 1971 murder of Wendy Braddon. This information was off limits during the trial because it could be prejudicial. Hoffmeister's attorney, this time it's William Cataldo, files an appeal. Phil Ingraham, who represented Hoffmeister in 68 and 71, now works for the Oakland County Friend of the Court. In May of 1996, the 1992 sentence is overturned, and a new trial is ordered. In the fall of 96, Hoffmeister again goes on trial for the murder of Marcia Short. He is again found guilty of the murder. As of this writing, 71-year-old Byron Hoffmeister is serving two sentences for second-degree murder at the Ojibwa Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Interestingly, I just read that this facility is slated to close and its residents will be transferred to other facilities throughout the state of Michigan. If the chronology of this episode seems a bit strange, I presented the case the way that information was revealed to the public. Hoffmeister's arrest for Braddon's murder was big news, which brought his earlier arrest and prison term for the kidnapping and assault of two children to light. It took 25 years for the justice system to catch up with Hoffmeister and charge him with the murder of Marcia Short. Her husband, Bruce, suffered unfairly for years under the weight of suspicion, and the trials in 1992 and 1996 brought resolution to the case. But it took so very long to get there. This concludes the story of Berkeley, Michigan's own Byron Hoffmeister. And my Uncle Walter was not kidding when he said that Hoffmeister was a bad guy. I don't think anyone who grew up with Hoffmeister could have predicted the horrors that he would inflict on the community. 
Special thanks go out to the Berkeley and Huntington Woods Public Safety Departments for their assistance in procuring information for this episode. Listeners, if you haven't had an opportunity to leave a review for Already Gone, please take a moment and review us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or on your favorite podcatcher. Reviews help people find the show and the cases discussed here. Stay tuned after the credits for a promo from our friends at the Murder Mile podcast. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, Audible, a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Visit audible.com slash Detroit or text Detroit to 500-500. Already Gone is a bi-weekly podcast focused on Michigan and the Great Lakes region. For more information on this episode, including links to some of our research, visit our website, www.alreadygonepodcast.com. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast, which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018, is based on my five-star rated guided walk, and features more than 300 untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time, old cases through a fresh pair of ears, and classic cases with a twist, all researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favorite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening, and stay safe.